Right. Good morning. Good evening to everyone listening to us today. Uh, welcome again to this new episode of Digital Adoption Show. My name is Akshay and I will be your host for today's podcast. A little bit about me. I manage the customer success enterprise team at Watfix. I've been in the consulting domain around various technologies like cloud, security, analytics, data, data warehousing, and most recently, digital transformation uh, for around 10 years now. Uh, I'm based out of Bangalore, India, and I'm passionate about learning new technologies and how technology can make an impact to our lives. So with that being said, today we'll talk about five must-follow hacks to build a future-proof workplace. And I'm pleased to introduce our speaker for today's episode, Claire Doody. Claire is an industry veteran in the L&D space and has worked for global companies at various leadership roles and has also run her own startups. She's a thought leader in the field of learning. And without much wait, let me pass on the stage to Claire. And Claire, let's get in the hot seat and uh, we'll look forward to your introduction first. Thanks, Akshay. It's uh, great to be talking to you today. Yeah, so I'm I'm Claire. I work with people who want to change work. Uh, I've set up a consultancy called Work in Motion. Um, so I do that by working with individuals one-to-one as a thought partner. I run peer-based inquiries into the future of work and the future of learning and development. And um, I help companies to develop and execute um, their strategies for new ways of working. So that's me, and I'm I'm here for the chats. Delighted to be here. Thank you, Claire. We're pleased to have you here with us. All right, so let's get into the discussions. And uh, I was going through your LinkedIn profile, and it's quite fascinating to see that you have over 20 years of experience in learning higher education and consulting roles, you know, across the industry base, you worked at, uh, you know, various companies and most likely I think the recent one was Twitter as well. So do you see a common problem between these sectors when it comes to training the employees, you know, learning higher education and different consulting? Yeah, I mean, I, and I speak to people from lots of different, um, you know, industries as well. And to me, I think the there is a common problem that regardless of, what sector you work in, if you work in learning and development, and that's the belief that training is the solution to whatever problem presents itself. So, you know, often LNG is in a silo. It's like, we're the training people. Come to us for training. We deliver training. That's what we do. And, you know, some of it is structural because it's it's siloed a little bit. And some of it is just a need to reframe and recalibrate the role. Because I think most organizational challenges cannot be solved by training alone. You know, there, it might be that there's a, a new technology needed or the process is flawed or, you know, it could be that leaders aren't role modeling the behavior, but you're trying to, you know, get everybody to role model, to, to, to behave in a certain way. So in those situations, training can actually be, become part of the problem. And it's when training can, can get a, you know, when, when you can get negative feedback that it's not working, but it was never going to succeed because it wasn't looking you know, at the problem in 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 its wholeness. So I think LNG leaders today need to expand their thinking and really check that they're perceiving the problem and understand their role either as one piece of the puzzle um, and or else to to step up and bring other problem solvers into into the team and and establish a cross-functional team to to really move the needle. So you know, it's it's ultimately about how can we create the conditions for this company to thrive. And yes, training is is part of the solution, but so is mindset and culture and systems and structures. Uh, and once all those elements are working well together, you have a chance to make a big difference. Absolutely, and I, I really second your thoughts. Of uh, you know, some of the keys which I 
could really pick here, you know, I second those, you know, the mindset, the culture, systems that you spoke about. And, you know, frankly, the last couple of years, uh, or rather the, the COVID, post-COVID era, you know, has changed a lot. You know, I could, uh, when I was working with my customers at WhatFix, you know, I deal uh, a lot with the L&D leadership, you know, uh, who want to change the training. And uh, we could see the similarities in what you spoke about, like the non-structure or siloed approach of learning and you know, learning probably scattered across the organization. So my question to you is, you know, post-COVID technology has become a backbone of any LND function. And how do you think can leaders use technology more effectively while keeping the human element in mind? Because it's all about mindset and cultures that you spoke about in the end. So how do you think technology can complement it well? Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny because I think technology can make experiences more human than being physically in the same room together. Like, okay, when I started my career 20 years ago, uh, there was a, a very strong, uh, you know, gap between being alone, working through content on an LMS. And today where, you know, there, there can be really transformational learning experiences, you know, when you're using like things like Slack and Miro and Zoom and you've got multiple touch points, it can be very powerful. And it's not that I don't think there's, you know, I don't I have nothing against in-person experiences. I think that, that we crave that connection. But a well-designed uh, tech, tech-enabled tech learning can be really human and it, it can create a continuity outside the, the classroom to build a more sustainable relationship across peers and it can be much more inclusive if, if so I'm participating in a course at the moment that's being run out of Canada so I don't have to get on a plane from Dublin for, you know abandon my husband and to, to the three kids pay for a hotel pay for flights I can participate in that course from here uh, and also for introverts you know they can manage their energy levels better than being like overwhelmed by just the experience of being around Lots of people. So there's benefits that, you know, technology brings to LNG that, that you know, that you just can't have in the classroom and, and not to not to denigrate classroom experiences. I love them, too. But I think there's huge opportunity. Now, what I will say is there's a caveat, which mm-hmm. is that, you know, to to get to that very high standard, you, you need really good learning design and you need really good facilitation to create those experiences. Um, and that creates a tension almost between scalability and the, the number of touch points or how human, how how much, you know, facilitated or moderated the program is. And, and then on the other end of the spectrum, sadly, there's plenty of just content, you know, festering away on learning management systems that that would make you feel very isolated um, using e-learning and, you know, or the tools aren't being fully utilised. But, you know, there's great opportunity. I, I think it's never been more exciting, really, for L&D to, to start using technology. Um, I mean, start. We're past starting, but to really exploit what's available. Got it. Thank you. And can't agree more, you know, well-oiled and well-designed technology ecosystem is the need of the hour. I happen to be talking to, you know, the VP of one of the largest uh, tech recruiting firms in the world. And it is good to see how their roadmap or their vision talks about human-centric training and applying that into the day-to-day rules. So it looks like just uh, the technology world is going to make a huge difference in the the way we impart trainings and, uh, you know, the whole L&D, how is it going uh, currently. All right, I'll move on to the next question. With your vast experience, uh, you know, and working with different organizations, do you have any examples from your past organizations 
where you feel you wouldn't have been able to accomplish what you did without the technology? <laughs> like everything. I mean, <laughs> most of my professional accomplishments have been enabled by technology because actually I started my career in the year 2000 developing e-learning when it was like, you know, the, the internet connections were really crummy. And anyway, most of my career has involved technology in, in some respect or another. I mean, COVID is the obvious, you know, poster child, I suppose. Everybody, every LD professional has a COVID story. At Twitter, we could do a, like a rapid pivot to online onboarding the, the minute. I mean, we were phoning people, telling them not to get on a plane to come over to San Francisco for their onboarding. So we, we we pivoted to an online onboarding and that enabled people to start working at Twitter, to start earning their, their salaries. And it, and it enabled, you know, Twitter to continue with its mission and the machine would have really slowed right down if we had had to stop. But like beyond COVID and those obvious examples, like a, in Corville, where I led out customer education, we had a, when I started, we had a four-day classroom certification and we converted that into a blend of self-directed and instructor-led. Um, and, and we had actually built out an online lab where people could practice their skills in the technology. And it just meant we could scale as the company grew and and the lab I think was a was an enhancement that you know wasn't available when we were doing the classroom thing so people could really tailor to what they needed they needed more practice or less practice they had the opportunity to do it so yeah good question <laughs> yeah absolutely I think uh, you know the, the learning ecosystem in ways it's you know it's it's kind of changing and uh, uh, I'm wondering how how much when you when you launched these new programs you spoke about the e-learning systems and all yeah what success do you uh, you know, you get at the beginning of it, or is there, is there any kind of friction points that you see with people approaching it or changing the way or the the earlier styles of you know looking at retraining, learning, upskilling? Uh, like any any instances you want to share from your experience? Sure, director at Frito. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I can I can I have t- actually two examples come to mind. Um, I'll, I'll stick with Corville for the moment because that was one where when we shifted to uh, the new format, we wanted to offer some customers instructor-led online. So what everybody wound up doing with Zoom during COVID, but this was before it, and our our instructors who were engineers effectively, they they really didn't like, they loved being in the room with people. They found the whole uh, format of you know, online facilitation, really challenging. And I would say that is an art form. So actually, when I started in Twitter, then we all got certified in online facilitation from LPI. You can't just pick up a Zoom and think that you can teach in the same way as you would have done in the classroom. It's it's very different. So uh, I think just respect that that's a new skill set. And um, I think the world has come so far during COVID. But still, I don't know if many, if everyone has taken the time to really invest into developing their facilitation skills you, you know yes in the uh, in the virtual world and the other example i give you about digital adoption would be at twitter i led out global organization effectiveness or it was an an initiative called 
how we were. And one of the uh, perceived problems was at Slack. We had introduced Slack, but there wasn't full uptake of it. So what happened was half the company was using Gchat and half the company was using Slack. Mm -hmm. And people came to me saying, we need a training. (laughs) I was like, do we need a training? I mean, that's true, but it's not the full truth. You know, it's partial. So what else do we need? So this goes back to that bigger picture thing. So I partnered with IT and we learned that actually different functions had different levels of adoption. And when we shared that data with the leadership, they all kind of got a bit kind of, oh, oh, actually, my function isn't using it and I haven't been using it. And it was all about role modeling. Once the leaders started to use it with their organizations, the people got on, but like they didn't actually need training wasn't an obstacle to adoption. It was once people were in, then it enabled them. You know, we did provide we did develop resources with IT that helps people make the most out of it or, you know, minimize the disruption or, you know, establish etiquette around using Slack. But it wasn't uh, it wasn't the barrier to entry that everybody thought it was. So I think, um, yeah, maybe that that in, that shares some insight with you about um, how people feel about taking on new technology. Oh, yes. I mean, uh, it's a mindset change as well. You know, when I work with my customers, I get to hear a lot. You know, we have this whole new systems, you know, very clearly laid out processes and so and so we have help but still people are not ready to use it you know they sometimes it's just easy for someone to reach out to a colleague and say hey how do you do this or how do you help me with this so i think it's about conditioning as we've spoken about earlier as well and you know your incident about um, how your half your company was across slack and google chat i think we you know, it takes me back to the COVID days, you know, March 2020, again, our organization was going through the same transformation internally. Half of our company was on Google, and then we introduced Slack because engineering teams found it effective. And uh, the initial point is, I think the the sticking point is, you know, the first few weeks, you know, but until until you make the transition and when everyone is moved around, I think, you know, I, today, if you ask me, um, I would be so hesitant to move away from Slack because I can get a lot done, you know, different groups, uh, chatting with different teams. So collaboration at a different level. So, yeah. yeah. And I think, I think with us, Slack had, it was similar. The engineers brought it in, like it was kind of, it was sort of a grassroots driven, like what, you know, engineers liked it and found it useful. And, the rest of us were a bit slower to kind of adopt it because maybe it had, it had come in as a grassroots thing. But once um, once there was sort of a, a leadership position that we should be using Slack uh, and people started demonstrating that, we really got to critical yep. mass that way. And of course, there were some that stayed on Google Chat, and but the, there was no ambiguity about where you you know where the majority of the organization was. Awesome. All right. Now, next one is my personal favorite, and I'm going to pick your brains and uh, you know your experience further on the LND strategy. So, my next question is: How do you create a change when building an LND strategy? What three things you should be keeping in mind? So, the first one, and like this could just be all three, <laughs> but the first one is about understanding the business and what its purpose is. Like the coming along with a you know standard playbook of you know offerings from, from what you know the, I suppose the standard LNG offering of onboarding and manager training and whatever that is you know you it, it you really need to understand what's important to your business and what's important to your business over the coming years like if your business is going to double in size over the next 18 months you will probably benefit from putting in place some diverse hiring and interviewing skills if your business wants to break into new markets, how can you help them do that? And, you know, sometimes it's, 
it's a scary conversation to have when you you really don't know the answer. Like so a lot of people want to go into conversations knowing that they have the answer and that they can, you know, um, deliver for 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 that person. But you know, it's very powerful even just to have that conversation with the business. You get them much more bought into what you're trying to do, and if you listen to what they're telling you, you'll understand how you can really make an impact. That's number one. And understand the business. So number two, I think you have to get ruthless about what you focus on. And my experience over many years has been that you you can quickly become an order taker. You can you you, you can come under pressure from various parts of the business to do things for them. And if you don't have a framework for taking things on and rejecting things, you know the list starts to mount. You just don't have the resources or the capacity to take the to take it all on. You spread yourself too thin and you get nowhere. So really choosing only two or three things uh, that will impact on the business and that you can invest all of your people into working on it and all of your resources, um, that will be a much uh, a much better way to move. Um, and finally, then the third thing kind of related to what I was saying earlier, just to zoom out and expand your thinking you know, and appreciate that very few things can be addressed by learning alone. Um, looking at the mindset, the behaviours, the culture and the systems and really seeing, asking yourself, what's incentivizing people to behave or to, to act in the way that we're trying to to, to address and what's um, what's getting in their way? So you, you, I think we need to reframe L&D as a performance consultant, you know, so that doesn't always mean that there's going to be training in the solution. Absolutely. I really love the three points. And the last one you just said, you know, transforming L&D into performance consulting right so usually i've seen this um, across that you know lnd units are just probably limited to a part of the organization but not entire organization you know or some of the new units or new business units um, when they start with more business applications they don't have support of lnd probably they don't uh, realize the need of doing so but having said that i think over the course of time with my experience i've seen a lot of companies then realize and bring lnd back into the business because it's not just about one time need you know one time setup it's about a continuous learning and a iterative process so i think yes the 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 whole reason for transforming the purpose of lnd is is very important and i think culture also plays a big culture language mindsets or play a big role in it yeah i don't know if you've come across uh, bob mosher and um i can't remember the name of his company but they they talk about the five moments of need and really designing your performance support rather than learning to give your your uh, your learner the least amount of information needed in that moment to complete the task at hand, and actually a lot of what they a lot of the output from that is is more like um, you know process drawings. You know this is how the, the process works, and um, I know where to go to get the information that I need, and uh, working with the subject matter experts rather than. Um, you're working with the, the people doing the work rather than with the, you know, the subject matter ex- expert who might be a bit detached from it. Absolutely. I think uh, contextual learning, learning in the flow of work, you know, learn when you need it and in the right place. So that's a very good conversation. I think, you know, we can go over and over it. But yeah, in the interest of time, I'll move on to the next question. And one of the very common questions organizations usually have, and I, I, I do get it a lot, you know, when I work with multiple customers is, how do you calculate the ROI of a you know a great workplace? What are your thoughts on it? Yeah, I mean, I think it, you know it's it's always hard to measure everything. Like some things you cannot measure, and and for that reason, I feel LNG sometimes falls back on completion rates or that type of data. But 
you know, there's there's lots of other information around the workplace that will give you an idea if you've got a great workplace or not. You know, you can look at um, hiring data, you know, what's the rate of acceptance when offers are made? Does that tell you that you have a good reputation or, you know, that the candidates have had a, had a good process, a good experience? You can look at attrition data. And um, actually, an interesting thing a colleague of mine at Twitter did was look at the average tenure of employees that took a career development course and the average tenure of the same kind of equivalent cohort that didn't. And and it, those that took the course stayed seven months longer in their in, in at oh. Twitter than those who didn't. Now it's hard to know whether what the cause you know if there is a causal relationship there, but it's definitely an interesting correlation. And I think it's really interesting to look at trends in certain role categories. Like do mid level sales people leave typically after eighteen months? What's happening there? What's happening at twelve months or fourteen months when they might start to look around? Is it a lack of progression? Is it compensation and incentives? Like what's happening in the system and what's happening you know in terms of um I don't know any intelligence that you can gain when you start to see trends in data around attrition is is very interesting, even if your company doesn't do leaving interviews, which of course are another uh, rich source of data. And then employee sentiment surveys, you know, there's there's loads you can do with these. You can dig into how people are feeling about how easy it is to work. You know, you'll hear there's too many meetings or decision-making is too slow, or, you know, another good one is looking at managers. You know, how do we what are the expectations of our managers and what is our employee sentiment survey telling us about those expectations? So learning and development can get lots of clues in from those employee sentiment surveys as to, you know, whether they are contributing to a healthy and effective workforce. Absolutely. I second you. Um, attrition data, average tenure of the employees, you know, those are really, really deeper insights, you know, and we are, uh, my current company, Wattfix, we do run these employee sentiment surveys. In fact, there's something interesting that we have. Uh, we have a, a tool works as a virtual assistant uh, to our leadership, uh, including our CTO and CEO. And employees can anonymously chat with that tool and, uh, you know, you can pass on the direct feedback uh, without worrying about anything, you know, to bring it up to the to the leadership, right? So I think yeah, those are really commendable ways of, you know, caring about employees and also the people you know, uh, again, the human touch um, in in every aspect of it, right? So, yeah. yeah. All right. So I'll move on to the last segment of our chat today. You know, something on a lighter note for our listeners today, the rapid fire questions. And the first one, I was, you know, when I'm going through your uh, profile on LinkedIn, I got to know you from Ireland and one of the beautiful places on this planet. And I really want to be there and, you know, visit. And I was fascinated to just know if you, you know, you must have watched a popular show called Game of Thrones and have you been to any of the locations uh, where this was shot in Ireland? <laughs> I have. I have. I, oh. It's funny. I can't. I, I'm, I'm not a big enough Game of Thrones geek to be able to, to <laughs> map it back to the location in Game of Thrones where I've been. But a, a lot of that was filmed in Northern Ireland um, right. and along sort of the Northern Ireland uh, coastline and castles and there's a there's a lovely oh I can't remember the names of, of Absolutely places, but, yeah and uh yeah my actually my husband and I got got down um to Northern Ireland a beautiful part of the world and we did the Castle Reedy Rope Bridge and we did Giant's Causeway and there's a lovely pathway that's like all tree lined and I think it's when people are going to Winterfell it's like a it's it's a it's kind of a a well-filmed uh, tree-lined avenue that's very beautiful and I cannot remember the name of it. Yes, yes. And, and uh, on record, I want to say it, I'm not a 
Game of Thrones nerd as well. I just happened to watch it for the sake of it, but not a nerd. So I don't know locations uh, by the name either. Yeah, it was a while ago, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's a while ago, and now yeah, they're 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 coming up with a prequel to it, uh, which is just going on. I happened to watch the episode today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're watching too. <laughs> Awesome. All right. Uh, the last one, um, outside of work, uh, what are the things that you enjoy doing, Claire? Yeah, I think um, the, my most noteworthy hobby, because it's very off brand for most people who know me, is that I, I go sea swimming. Um, yeah. And I took this up only a year ago. Sea swimming became really popular in Ireland over COVID because you couldn't really everywhere. Everything else was closed, but you could go to the sea and get in for a dip. And I didn't start during the lockdowns, but some of my friends did. And I eventually got into it. And it's like freezing cold in the middle of winter. Every Friday I will go in and freeze my ass off <laughs> and <laughs> run back out. And I will feel amazing afterwards. So sea swimming is is a big love of mine. And the other hobby that I really love is getting out for walk. Very lucky we live near um, the, the Dublin mountains. So there's beautiful like pine forest, wow. nice views of the city. And yeah, I've started, it used to be my thing, but now I've started to, my, my children are kind of, my youngest is kind of old enough to sustain like a one hour hike. You know, maybe we'll get up to 90 minutes, but I've decided I'm, I'm it's going to become a family affair because otherwise I don't get out enough. Oh, amazing. And now I earn more to... Uh, visit Ireland, Dublin, and all the beautiful places that we've been around. I know I can't do uh, open water swimming or sea swimming. At least uh, it'll take me uh, decades, even if I uh, you know, get through the, the you know the training, coaching, and learning there. But yeah, it's 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 really good to know. And yeah, since this was a fun chat, Claire. I, I know we are on top of the hour. It was great interacting and learning from you. And I hope you two had fun talking to us and. We look forward to catching up again. Uh, thank you. Yeah, thanks, Akshay. It's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. And thank you to all our listeners. And this is your host, Akshay, signing off. <laughs>